Amen. That is the king we serve, the risen, living, currently interceding before the Father for you and for me, King Jesus. That is the one we serve and the one we worship. Raise your hand if you had a nice big dinner just now. Yeah. Raise your hand if you had big old helping of that bread pudding. Raise your hand if you had a massage. Raise your hand if you had a nap today. Y'all are all going to fall asleep tonight. That is what is going to happen. You know, they say that if you want to stay awake after a nice, big, comfy meal and a relaxing afternoon, the best way for a talk, to listen to somebody give a talk, the best way to stay awake is to be the one giving it. So I have actually asked them to pray for me that I will stay awake, but I'm going to be watching y'all, and I will call you out. (laughs) Well, we ended last session. It was a great afternoon, though, wasn't it? What a beautiful, glorious day the Lord gave us. Well, we left last session together reminding ourselves that what God says about us is the truest thing there is. No matter what lies you might believe about yourself or no matter what you have have believed others have said about you, what God says about you is the true truth. It is the eternal truth. And he says that if you are in Christ, you are righteous. You are righteous. You are becoming holy like he is holy. It's what Katie was talking about, our sanctification, and you have died to sin. What we saw in our first session last night was that we need to run to him because he is our only hope. And what we saw this morning is that we need to believe him because his word is True, And so now what I want to do together is I want to look and see how all these great truths that we have talked about, that we have sung about, that we have heard from Megan and from different people, that, that all these great truths should lead us, should lead you, and should lead me to the exact same place that these great truths led Paul, and that is to worship him, to worship him. So for 11 chapters, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has taken his readers to the heights of his understanding of who God is and what God has done. And what he has done for his readers is he has shown us that that God is the righteous one and that what God has done is that he has made a way for us unrighteous to become righteous. And we briefly touched on how this plan of God, this plan of redemption, this plan that was crafted in eternity past, and it began to unfold in the garden, and we watch it unfold through all of Scripture. But it's exactly what we just saw in the video. This plan of God to redeem all things back to himself, to redeem you and to redeem me, this plan of God was both more gruesome and more glorious than anybody could have ever imagined. I mean, what a plan. What a plan God had to accomplish our salvation. To paraphrase 2 Corinthians 5:21, Jesus 
for our sake, but let's make it more personal, Jesus, for your sake, Jesus, for your sake and for your sake and for my sake, Jesus, for our sake, was made to be sin. He did not sin, but he was made to be sin so that he, and it says, he who knew no sin, he was sinless, so that in him, there's that phrase again, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God, that we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin so that we might become righteous. That is the gospel once again spelled out. And then we saw how Paul made sure that his readers knew and know that there's more, that because of the righteousness of Christ, you have all of these mercies in God, don't you? You and I have these. We have this freedom from God's wrath, and we have freedom from bondage. That's what we looked at this morning. We have freedom from alienation. We are not alienated anymore. We have freedom from condemnation. We will never be condemned. We have freedom from fear of death. You and I no longer need to fear death because it has been defeated. It has been defeated. We have freedom from sin. That's what we looked at this morning. We have freedom from bondage. And we have been given all of these things. So we have been given life and mercy and love and acceptance and forgiveness and liberty and, and life and joy and righteousness. And that's, that is what Paul is laying out again in chapters 1 through eight, and then in chapters nine through eleven, the one that you know, I asked the publisher if in, the, in the study we could just skip over those chapters. What in the world, right? Those, if you know the book of Romans, you know that those are really hard chapters. But what Paul does in those chapters is he just dives off this cliff. It's like, it's like chapter 8, he's looking at this beautiful vista, and he's, he's lifting our eyes to see the beauty and the glory of God. And then in chapter 9, he just dives, and he goes so deep into the mysteries of God, the mysteries of God. He talks about things like, will God be faithful to Israel? I mean, what a mystery. He talks about this idea of God's complete sovereign work in salvation, God is the one who chooses. God is the one who works. God is the one who opens eyes. And at the same time, our responsibility to respond. How do you hold those things in tension? It's a mystery. It's a mystery of God. What about the necessity? This is what Paul talks about in 9 through 11. The necessity that you and I go and that we proclaim the good news for salvation to occur. But also the necessity that only God can open Blind eyes and deaf ears and closed hearts. And so there are these mysteries of God that Paul just marvels at in chapters 9 through 11. And when Paul comes to the end of all of God's mercies and all of God's mysteries, it's like he realizes just the sheer magnificence of all he has written. And it causes him to literally burst forth in praise. John Stott says this, for 11 chapters, Paul has been giving his comprehensive account of the gospel. Step by step, he has shown how God has revealed his way of putting sinners right with himself, how Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification, how we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, how the Christian life is lived not under law but in the spirit, and how God plans to incorporate the fullness of Israel and the Gentiles into his new community. Paul's horizons are vast. He takes in time and eternity, history and eschatology, 
identity, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And now, Stott says, he stops out of breath and he falls down before God and he worships. Turn with me to Romans 11, starting in verse 33. This is what Paul wrote. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Did you hear how Paul began? It's this little word, oh. Oh. Oh, the depth of the riches. And it's almost like it catches Paul a little bit off guard himself. Because that little word, oh, it's like a gasp. It's unexpected. It's not, it's not planned. It's just a response that comes out before you and I even realize what's happening. And so one of the questions I want to ask you tonight in this session is what causes you to gasp in amazement? What causes you to gasp in amazement? You know, each time one of our sons and his wife told us that they were pregnant, I, oh, I gasped. You know, today I went on a Jeep tour. We came around a corner. It was absolutely beautiful. And then there was this sequoia. And I gasped. Oh, I mean, it was beautiful. Received an email last week. I gasped so loud. My husband came running in to find out what was wrong. But do I gasp in wonder and amazement at God and his word? Do I gasp when I read and I'm confronted with the mercies or the mysteries of God, with the goodness of God, with the holiness of God? Does it catch me off guard? Well, it did, it did Paul. And Paul gasped at what he says is he's gasping at the sheer depth of God and his wonderful mystery. So look at what made him gasp. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, the depth, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I mean, the depths of God the depths of God are things that you and I will never understand, things that we cannot begin to fathom. And Paul just names three of them here. The depths of his riches, the depths of his wisdom, and his knowledge. And so just the first one, the riches of God. What do you think of when you think of the riches of God? You know, we know, right, that God is the high king of heaven, He's the creator of it all. He owns it all. There is not one square inch on this whole earth that Jesus does not say that is mine. Everything is subject to him. Everything belongs to him. One day we know that every knee will bow. All of creation is groaning for the redemption because he is redeeming all things. But when we talk about the riches of God, we often reference Psalm 50, which says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And, and we take that to him, and we say, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. And so we're going to him because we know that God can provide anything and everything that we need. And it's true. 
And it's good and right to go to God and ask him for our provision. He is our provider. But the reference here to the riches of God is not primarily in reference to what he can provide. It's a reference to who he is. It's a reference to him. God is rich in mercy. God is rich in kindness. God is rich in forgiveness and love. God is rich in salvation. And those are actually the riches that you and I need most. And so what Paul's saying here is he is saying, oh, the depths of the mercy of God. Oh, the depths of the kindness of God. The depths of the love of God. The depths of the riches of the glory of God. And so not only is there this inexhaustible supply, inexhaustible, please hear that. If you are seeking the mercy or the kindness or the love or the forgiveness or the salvation of our God, it is an inexhaustible depth that belongs to our God, to the riches of his kindness. And there is a never-ending depth to those things. And there is also a never-ending, bottomless pit, never-ending depth to his wisdom and his knowledge. Now, I don't know if you can relate, but daily I feel at the end of my own knowledge and the end of my own wisdom. When a situation is before me and I literally just don't know what to do, I either need more knowledge or I need to apply the knowledge that I already have, which is, which is wisdom, knowing how to apply the knowledge we have. And so when a situation is before me and I lack these things, I can go to God. Because God, right, God never comes to the end of his knowledge. And he never comes to the end of his wisdom. It's why we can say that God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows everything. It means that God knows the number of stars in the sky. He knows how old each one is. He knows the name that he calls them. God and in his infinite, inexhaustible knowledge, he knows the depths of the ocean. He knows what lies in the farthest galaxy. I mean, he knows all of it. I looked up the 25 greatest mysteries, unsolved mysteries, and friends, he knows the answer to each one. God knows if there is a creature swimming around in Loch Ness. He knows. He knows. God knows where Noah's Ark and the Ark of the Covenant currently are. God knows why Stonehenge was made. I mean, God knows these things. But God also knows what your greatest hope has ever been. God knows what has caused you the greatest pain. God knows when you sing in the shower. And God knows when you cry yourself to sleep. God knows. God knows. He knows your anger. He knows your fear. He knows your loneliness. He knows your sadness. He knows your joy. He knows your compassion. He knows your desires. He knows your hopes, he knows your failures, he knows your sins, he knows your victories, I mean, he, he knows, he knows you, 
He knows all of you. He knows every single thing about you. And when David was confronted with that, when David realized that that was true in Psalm 139, this is what he said. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. And then he said, there is nowhere that I can go to get away from you knowing me. Because, friends, sometimes we don't want, we don't want to be known. And the thought that God knows everything can be terrifying. We think, if God knew that, you know what? He does. He knows that. And you know what? He didn't turn away. He didn't turn away. In fact, he drew near. He drew near. David ended Psalm 139 by saying, search me, O God, and know me. Search me and know me. And so what David is doing is he is inviting this deep knowledge of God. He is welcoming it because David came to the conclusion that God's knowledge, his infinite, his omniscient, his intimate knowledge of us is actually a good thing. And there is only one way that can be true. There is only one way that that can be true, that it is a good thing that God knows everything about me. And that is if God's love is as deep as God's knowledge. And it is. What he knows about you and what he knows about me did not cause him to turn away because he loves us. He loves us in unfathomable ways. Things that we, we don't understand it. It's unfathomable depths. You know, we sing that song, Oh, how he loves us. Have you ever sung that? And it's just on repeat, Oh, how he loves us. No other religion in the world can stand up and just boldly proclaim, Oh, how he loves us. He loves us. I mean, it's amazing. It's astounding that we can rest in that. When Corey Tinboom said, famously said, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. She was referring to this depth. Because it is a love that is so deep and it is also so wide and so high and so long that you will never, ever, ever, ever come to the end of it. There is no end to it. The depth of God's love is infinitely deeper, infinitely deeper than your greatest sorrow, than your greatest shame, than your greatest fear, than your greatest worry, than your greatest bitterness. His love is infinitely deeper than any of those things. And it's true. But the question is, do you know it? And do you believe it? In Ephesians, Paul prayed a prayer for the church in Ephesus, and this is what he's talking. He's talking about this deep, deep love of Jesus, and he's praying for them, and he's saying being rooted and grounded, meaning firmly established. That's what he's praying, that they will be rooted and grounded, firmly established in love, in this love of Christ, that they would be, that they would be anchored in it, and that they would have the strength to comprehend or to know, to believe with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And it surpasses knowledge because it's so deep. We cannot fathom it. And so that is my prayer 
for us, that you and I would know this love of Christ, that we would be anchored in it. And the depth of whatever you are going through, the depth of your sorrow, the depth of the darkness, the depth of the brokenness, the depth of the pain, the depth of the shame, whatever it is, that that would be swallowed up by the infinitely, incomprehensibly greater and deeper love of Christ. Because, friends, the Lord knows and the Lord loves. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Then Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. And I love those two words, unsearchable and inscrutable. Unsearchable means not capable of being discovered. You know, no amount of searching is going to lead to discovery. We cannot discover God. And inscrutable is when something can't even be understood. And so not only are we not able to explore and to find God, even if we could, we would be incapable of understanding who he is. I used to teach biology, and I would have my students memorize the classification system. So this might be triggering for some of you. Some of you might break out in hives. But if you remember in high school biology, it is kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, right? And obviously, thanks, Megan, you refreshed me on that before this, right? Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Um, and every living organism, every living organism falls into that classification system. But one, but one, not God. God, he's not, he's living, but he's not like us. He's not part of his creation. He loves his creation, but he is completely separate from his creation. And that is called the transcendence of God. God is high. He is lifted up. He's other than us. He is inscrutable. He is unsearchable. We desperately need to find him. We desperately need to know him, but we are incapable of either of those things, which means that you and I are utterly dependent on God revealing himself to us. We do not discover God. We can't discover God. He is unsearchable. He is not like us, but he has willingly, voluntarily, lovingly revealed himself to us. And that's part of the imminence of God. It's part of him drawing near. If his transcendence is that he's high and lifted up, his imminence is that he draws near to us. And so the way he has chosen to do that is first and foremost in his word. This is, this is the revelation of God himself. His, the way he's chosen to do it, he initiated it, he voluntarily did it. Without this, we would not know him. He is unsearchable and unscrutable, but he has revealed himself to us in his word, which is why you and I have got to be women who are in the word of God, because this is where and this is how he has chosen to tell us about himself. It's the way. It's the way he's chosen to do it, the word of God. And what God does, how he has chosen to be known, is in the Bible, he both tells us who he is, and then he shows us who he is. And then he tells us who we are, and then he shows us who we are. And so he tells us things like Exodus 34. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
who will keep that steadfast love and faithfulness for a thousand generations. I mean, this is, this is who he says he is. I go back to that all the time. Lord, you chose to reveal yourself by telling us you are merciful and you are gracious. It's what he leads with. Anybody who says the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath or judgment, go read Exodus 34. I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He tells us that, but then he shows us that, doesn't he? I mean, just read the rest of the Old Testament. I mean, he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then he tells us who we are. And then he shows us who we are. You know, we think, oh, those Israelites or Adam and Eve or, you know, what was happening in the time. Of, I mean, that's us, right? And he shows us that we're rebellious and that we are obstinate. Ultimately, what we learn about ourselves is that we are helpless and hopeless. That's who we are, but he shows us that he is the God who saves the helpless and the hopeless. That's who he is. And ultimately, when Jesus, the Gospel of John, tells us that he is the word made flesh. So the word of God took on flesh to dwell among us, and that is the complete revelation of God. Jesus says, if anyone has seen me, he has seen the Father. He revealed. And that, talk about imminence. If this is the imminence of God, God drawing near to us, revealing himself to us, think about what it was when Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. He drew so near to us. He was so imminent that this flesh that he took on, I mean, his feet got bloody and blistered and, and dirty. He drew so near to us that he experienced hunger and thirst and sorrow and pain and exhaustion. Jesus, the word made flesh, the revelation of the Father made flesh, drew so near. What we saw in the video is that he allowed his hands and his feet to be pierced with nails made out of elements that he had created. He drew so near that the breath of life himself breathed out his last in order to bring us life. That's how near he drew to us. Oh, how unsearchable and inscrutable are your ways. How unsearchable and inscrutable are your ways, oh God. Your plan is, most, is more glorious and more gruesome than any of us could ever imagine. Paul then asks three rhetorical questions. Look again with me. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? And he has literally just finished saying that none of us do. Or who has been his counselor? He's like, has anybody recently offered God any good advice? Or who has given a gift to him, to God, that he might be repaid? I mean, what do you have that he has not already given you? We have nothing that he has not given. And so what Paul is doing is he is reversing the three things that he began his praise with, riches and wisdom and knowledge. For who has known the mind of the Lord? That's knowledge. And who has been his counselor? That is wisdom. And who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? That is riches. And the clear answer that Paul wants us to get to, the clear answer is no one. No one. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Oh, not, not the Jews or the Gentiles. Or who has been his counselor? Oh, it wasn't Israel and it wasn't the nations. Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? No one. Not you. 
Not me, no one. So what do we do? We do what Paul did. We praise him. That's what caused Paul to literally burst forth with verse 36, for from him, because he is the source of all things, and through him, because he is the sustainer of all things, and to him, because he is the goal of all things, are all things, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was a man who spent a lot of time thinking about the great truths of God. He wrote about the great truths of God. He told others about the great truths of God. And do you see the fruit it produced in Paul to do those things? Produced the fruit of worship, of praise, of adoration, of gratitude. And it should do the same for us. As we study the Word of God, as we learn new things about God, as we try and fail and try again to apply the truths of Scripture to our lives, as we tell others about the mercies and the mysteries of God, these great truths should lead us to great worship. It is ultimately what we were created to do, created for. So I want to ask you this. Where in your life do you burst forth in praise? Our youngest daughter, no, our, not our youngest daughter, our oldest daughter, our third child, Shelby. She's one of those kids. We have four children. She's one of those that just from an early age just had a heart to praise God. Um, not anything we did, not stellar parenting, just the way God made her. And I remember she was about three years old. She was in the far back of the minivan, strapped into her car seat. And I looked back, and she had her hands up and her eyes closed, and she was singing, He is exhausted. The king is exhausted on high. <laughs> and I was like, well, she didn't quite get it right. But you know what? She wanted to praise him. And a few years later, my husband Craig, we used to live on 15 acres, and I've always been around horses, had horses, and we had what we called the pony pasture. So the kids had two ponies growing up, and Craig was driving in, and it was a long driveway, and he could see Shelby. She was about eight or nine years old, and she was in the pony pasture, and she was on Babe, the, the pony. And she was just riding babe bareback. And there was in this pony pasture, there was a wooded area. And then there was an open area. It was in Kansas. So the wooded area was rare, but it was there. The open area is what we're used to in Kansas, not many trees. So she is riding through the wooded area. And she was trotting. And he's just watching her do this. And she was kind of leaned over, but he could see her mouth moving. And then she got out into the open area, and she just kicked Babe. So Babe kind of went into this canter. And she put her head back and threw an arm out, and she was saying her lips were moving again. And my husband thought, what in the world is she doing? And so he went over, because he saw her do it like two or three times. So he went over, he got out of the car, and he went over by the fence of the pony pasture to see, to listen, to figure out what she was doing. And as she was riding through the trees, she was whispering. In the closed area, she was whispering, you are the God who made the trees. You are the God who made the grass. 
And then she got out in the open area and she just threw her arms out. She was like, you are the God who made everything. And this little girl just creating songs and praising God out of the overflow of her heart. She was bursting forth in praise. When was the last time you burst forth in praise? Friends, our God is rich in mercy. He is rich in love. He knows the depths of who we are. He knows the depths of our unrighteousness. And yet his love for us is unfathomably deeper still. Yes, our God is high and lifted up. He is holy, 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 but he is near. He is imminent. We have nothing to give him, yet he gives us all things. Our God is unsearchable and inscrutable. Our God is full of both mercy and mystery. Gasp in amazement and let your hearts and your lips produce and burst forth in the fruit of his praise. For from him and through him and to him are all things worship him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do bow before you and we simply praise you. We worship you, like Megan said, for who you are and we praise you for what you have done. You are high and lifted up. You are other than us. You are transcendent. Oh, but Lord, you're imminent and you're near and you walk with us and you shepherd us and you love us and you forgive us and you know us. And so, Lord, I pray right now that every woman in this room would know that your deep knowledge of her is a beautiful thing because your love is deeper still. Lord, let us rest in that. Let us run to you. Let us worship you. You are worthy of every breath, every praise every adoration now and forever. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.